0: We arrive today at the third of the seven churches to Asia Minor and the epistle written to the church at Pergamon, a church which has, even as the Apostle writes, experienced persecution unto death, as we shall note, which differentiates Pergamon from Smyrna, where persecution unto death is coming though there has been tribulation or trial already, and different from Ephesus, where that second-generation church community has made peace with the world around itself and consequently has no warning about coming tribulation or persecution. It doesn't mean that it didn't eventually come to Ephesus historically, but it wasn't present in the imminence of the speaker's revelation. So, in chapter 2, verse 12, we begin with the letter that Christ directs to the church at Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. Now, as we scan the literary structure of this letter, you will notice the word sword in verse 12. And once again, the word sword In verse 16, it ostensibly provides a literary framework for the remarks that are bracketed by it, bracketed by the two words sword in 12 and sword in 16. If we gaze inside what lies inside 12 and 16, namely verses 13, 14, and 15, we notice an identification paradigm. That is the identification of Antipas with the narrative of Christ with himself, which I will comment on in detail a little bit later. But we also notice that there is a distinction between the the, the holders fast, those that hold fast to the faith and to the name of Christ in 13, and some who hold other things, namely the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The significance then of the sword frame, which of course is an image of imminent divine justice, the significance of the literary framing of what's inside is to frame the distinction between those that are on the two edges of the sword, that is those who hold fast to the truth, and are on the cutting edge, so to speak, of the word of Christ, which is the sword coming out of his mouth, that's the word of truth, and those who hold some other position antithetical to that. So within this literary frame is an antithesis. It is the antithesis between the faithful in verse 13 and the unfaithful or the heretical in verses 14 and 15. Now, there's some other things to notice about the details there, but we'll hold them for later on. Nonetheless, if you, if you, if you catch the purpose of the framing device, then you're directed to the antithesis between the types of persons in the Pergamine Church. The congregation is divided between those who hold fast to the name and faith of Christ and those who do not. Alright, well what about the name Pergamon? <clears throat> That's the Latin version of the Greek word Pergamon, and that Greek word in classical Greek means fortress, a fortress stronghold. And indeed that name, Pergamon, describes the geographical position and the imposing appearance of this great city. Pergamon was built on the plateau of a great hill. In fact, a hill about a 1,000 feet high, which rose above the valley of the river Caicus. Now, it looks like it should be pronounced Caicus, but it's actually pronounced Caicus. That river flows at the bottom of that slope upon which, about a 1,000 feet up in the air on a plateau, this impressive city of Pergamon was erected. Now, what was built there was regarded in many ways as the most spectacular city in Asia Minor. Not necessarily the most beautiful city. That label went to the city of Smyrna, not necessarily the most populous city or glorious city. That title went to the city of Ephesus, but this spectacular aura and array of buildings on this slope 1,000 feet up in the air. Now, Pergamon was built as a pagan city and it was fabled, legendary, for its pagan culture, its pagan ethos, temples, science, even its pagan repository. And by repository, I mean Pergamum had one of the largest libraries in the world in the Greco-Roman period. It was estimated that it had over 200,000 items, that wouldn't be 200,000 volumes because they would have had some clay tablets. They would have had some papyrus rolls and they would have had parchment tablets or parchment, uh, pages. In fact, the Latin word for parchment is pergamentum. Pergamentum means parchment, which is, of course, sheep or goat skin dried and then scraped and folded and made proper for writing upon. And it, of course, arose because of the need for something that would last longer than papyrus, which was subject to fragmentation and also mold and uh, uh, degeneration. It's a little hard to carry around uh, clay tablets, uh, particularly if you have a whole series of them with a whole... A series of stories on them, which of course is true of Babylonian and Akkadian mythology and much of that has been discovered, but this is the kind of information that would have been housed in Pergamon's great library. Now I mentioned that it was a city fabled for its pagan shrines and three of those pagan temples deserve detailed mention. First of all, in 29 B.C., Pergamon was the first city in Asia Minor, or Asia as it's called at this period, was the first city in Asia to adopt, to embrace, and to memorialize the pagan cult of the divine deified Caesar. Now in 29 B.C., The deified Caesar would be Caesar Augustus, only he wasn't deified back in Rome. The Roman Senate had some scruples about deifying a living human being. It was all right to deify Julius Caesar, who was Caesar Augustus' predecessor, because he was dead. And so they could make up the fable about his deity after his assassination. But Augustus Caesar, (coughs) who is, of course, the Caesar of Jesus' birth, Augustus Caesar was hesitant to push the scruples of the Roman Senate too far. But Pergamon was far away, far enough away from the Roman Senate that the Eastern superstition about the deification of the emperor could fly (coughs) Uh, f- fly with ease there. So the Pergamenes could worship Caesar Augustus, erect statues and temples to him, bow to him, and treat him as a god, because, of course, Babylonian emperors had been treated as gods. Assyrian emperors had been treated as god. The Near Eastern notion to deify an emperor was common in the cultural milieu, but not in Rome, at least not yet. Okay? So, in 29 BC, Pergamon builds the first shrine to the, to, in their opinion, the god Caesar Augustus. And they worship that living Caesar as a god on earth, including worshiping before his statue, bowing before his statue, doing proper obeisance to his statue, offering incense, and sacrifice in and to his name, pouring out libations, generally speaking, wine libations, pouring out libations in devotion to his statues. So that the imperial ruler of the world who embodies or represents the state is now imaged as a deity. Now there's a totalitarian uh, a political system, if there ever was one. Now, I mentioned that list of how you worship the emperor on purpose. You bow to his to his uh, statue in his shrine. You offer incense, which of course is just uh, a perfume that's been set on fire, or you offer a sacrifice, and a sacrifice can be a, a fowl, a bird-like, or it can be animal-like. Or you pour out a libation. You pour out a goblet or a vase of wine in front of the altar. Now, the reason I list those aspects of what it was to worship the emperor that is the kind of thing that Christians would be tested with later on when persecution became more generally common in the Roman Empire. In fact, that was one of the tests that was put to Polycarp at Smyrna. And there is another test which is mentioned by Titus in his letters to, or I'm sorry, Pliny, in his letters to Tacitus, in, in which Christians are required to avoid the persecution of the empire by offering obeisance to the emperor, and incense and libations are mentioned in that correspondence. So we know that, indeed, emperor worship included a whole cultic uh Rasmataz. <laughs> I'm grasping for a word here. There was a system to it. There were essential elements to it. And consequently, we know that from what Christians suffered who refused to do it. Randy, you've been patient. You had your hand up. Did did Alexander reject deification of himself? Um, I don't think he rejected it in the East, but he didn't advocate it either. The way he made his army bow before him in the Persian, in the Persian custom, that was leaning that way already. Yes, yes. He, 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 shall we say he was enamored of the custom, but I'm not sure that, I I can't say for certain that he regarded himself as a god on earth. That, that might have been a little too much for a, a, a student of Aristotle. Alright, now, this worship of the state as the totalitarian imperium, this worship comes to its fruition in the bold declaration of the Emperor Domitian. What do you know about the Emperor Domitian? He liked to slaughter Christians. the Christians? He may have. Yes, you know about Domitian because he's emperor when John is banished to Patmos, where this book, the book of Revelation, begins. Well, Domitian is down the line from Caesar Augustus, who was hesitant to push the scruples of the Roman Senate. Domitian was not. Domitian was the first Roman emperor who, while he lived, called himself Dominus et Deus, which in Latin means Lord and God. Now that shocked some of the sensitivities of people back in Rome, and eventually Domitian was assassinated, but not necessarily for that reason. There is this debate in scholarly circles about whether there was a Domitianic persecution of Christians. There may have been persecution of Christians in local settings during Domitian's reign, but there doesn't seem to be any concrete evidence of an empire-wide, that is a pogrom. Where he was executing Christians throughout the empire. But in, in local circumstances, perhaps, and John himself may have been caught in the fervor of some of that, and one, one of the reasons he was banished but was not executed. At any rate, This phrase "Dominus et Deus," which means Lord and God, should ring a bell with you. My Lord and my God, Thomas. Thomas. Confession of Thomas. When, Robert? When, uh, uh, Jesus appeared to him, because uh, he was the only one that hadn't seen the Lord at that time. The week before, he hadn't been present. A week yeah. later, he was there. And, when, and how did he come to make that confession? What was the, uh, per, the persuading point? Uh, yeah. Well, like he, he himself said, he, he wouldn't believe it until he saw the scars in the side and the nail prints. Yes. And uh, then he did see it, and that's when he fell down. Good, good, good use of compelling evidence. Yeah. All right. So in the Latin text of that uh, ex- uh, comment that Thomas makes when he is persuaded that that is the risen Christ, that's the real Jesus that he knew who had been crucified and now is alive because he has the marks of the death upon him, in the Latin text, when uh, Thomas says, My Lord and my God, it's Domino Sed Deus. Domino said Deus. To Christ Jesus. And here is Domitian taking that same phrase and applying it to himself. Now, of course, Domitian doesn't know anything about John's. Thomas's confession, and the Gospel of John hasn't been written. Well, it's hard to say that it hadn't been written when Domitian dies, or in ninety six. Yes, it had probably been written before ninety A.D. But in any event, uh, <coughs> Domitian is not aware of that. He's just aware that he's a, he's seizing this terminology and calling himself God high over all while he walks the earth. All right, so we have this antithesis, even in this phrase, Dominus et Deus, even in this clash, we have this antithesis between Christianity and the pagan emperor cult. Because of the prominence of the emperor cult in Pergamum, remember, it was the first one to begin it, In the east, because of the prominence of the emperor cult, and when I say emperor cult, I mean worship of the emperor with everything that goes along with it, libation, sacrifice, bowing, etc. Because of the prominence of the emperor cult in Pergamon, we are not surprised to learn that the city was then given the honorific title of the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Now Ephesus was, was jealous of that attribute because Ephesus was the larger city and the much more beautiful city. Not as beautiful as Smyrna was, but nonetheless it was a beautiful city. But no, the first honor of the provincial Roman capital of Asia, now we're talking about all of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, Provincial capital of the Roman province of Asia went to Pergamon because it was the first to worship the deified emperor. A majestic capital with a majestic fortress atop the hill that rises up out of the valley of the Caicus River. Yes, Reba.
1: It was both there would be people
0: superstitious enough to think that he was a god on earth, literally, but there are also those that ridiculed the idea and only regarded him as a political figure that as you said, the politically correct thing to say All right now, so much for the first uh, notable pagan temple or pagan cult in Pergamon. And second is that in addition to emperor worship, Pergamon was the center of worship for the god Asculapius or Asclepius. You see those names on your handout. Asclepius was the god of healing. His symbol is the caduceus. Now there is a bit of a misunderstanding about the caduceus, but Asclepius's caduceus was a staff rod with a single snake coiled around it. It's been suggested that Asclepius' staff was a staff with two snakes coiled around it, and you've seen that symbol in the medical profession. That's not actually the staff of Asclepius, even though it's associated with him popularly. That's the staff of Hermes, the messenger of the gods. In either case, the coiling of the snake around the staff is a testimony of to the healing power of the god Asclepius. Well, why is it that in this pagan culture, they would use a snake as a symbol of healing? Because for them, the snake was a, shall we say, walking or crawling illustration of renewal, physical health. Now, most of us, when we see snakes, don't think of symbols of physical health. And we wonder, how do you get renewal and health out of a snake? It's actually very easy. The ancients believed that because the snake shed its skin, it was clean. And it was renewing itself. It was becoming healthier as a result of uh, shedding that that skin. So the snake then becomes the chosen symbol of Asclepius, representing his healing powers through the same kind of process that the snake goes through in renewing itself. Yes, Reba? So is there any connection between Moses raising up the serpent? And no. The serpent? No, this is pagan mythology. This is not derived from biblical imagery at all. If you want if you to think about that in terms of a contrast, then you can think of, of an antithetical uh, image. But that serpent in the wilderness is a curse motif. All right, now... Um, I mentioned that Asclepius is a god, and obviously, the god has a temple. Go ahead. Rain. Yeah, I saw. I got to see a big python shed its shed its skin live. When it right after the skin's gone, it is very beautiful and shimmering. Quite dazzling, you know. Yes, agreed. You can see why they would think that there was some uh, power there or some uh, illustration of a little moral to but the story. He's still on the ground. Alright, <laughs> <laughs> right, well what about the temple of Asclepius? There was a very large temple in Pergamum to this god and the snakes were permitted non-poisonous. Snakes were permitted to slither their way at, at liberty through the uh, <coughs> confines of that temple. And the sick who came to the temple would sleep in its confines with the snakes slithering around until they were cured, until they received the dream of a cure. This practice of sick persons sleeping in the temple of Asclepius until they were healed is called incubation. That's where the word comes from, incubation, derived from being in the cubicle of Asclepius, waiting to be healed or waiting to receive a dream vision of being healed. Now, some might say just sleeping in a temple with snakes slithering around would be enough to get anybody better quickly. All right, now, in Christian culture, the snake or the serpent or even the dragon is a symbol not of healing, but a symbol of deceit and temptation a symbol of evil opposition to the word of God and his kingdom. Even in this book of Revelation, the devil or Satan is represented as a snake or serpent, even a great reptilian dragon. And I want you to turn ahead to chapter 12, verse 9. I want you to notice what is said there. Revelation 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. There's a plethora of imagery about Satan, which includes dragon imagery as well as serpent and snake imagery. All right, now follow me as we think a little bit about the protological serpent. The protological serpent who is the adversary in the Garden of Eden. That adversarial relation continues in the redemptive historical drama there is an eschatological redemptive historical drama, and that's the drama of redemption and salvation. But there is an anti-eschatological drama as well. That is, there's a drama of opposition to that salvific redemptive historical drama. So this protological, adversary serpent is matched by the eschatological adversary serpent, who reappears in the book of Revelation, or at least described so as Revelation, as we saw in chapter 12, verse 9, until that final clash with the eschatological anti-serpent, the eschatological anti-adversary, the final clash with the eschatological anti-devil, which is vividly portrayed in this apocalyptic book. There is a great war going on. It's been going on ever since that protological adversary came into the garden to bind us as sinners unto himself. And that fight includes the eschatological anti-adversary, one who is opposed to that satanic, <clears throat> that satanic devil. And that clash is going to emerge in its fullness in the imagery of this apocalyptic book of Revelation, the finality of the es- eschatological and anti-eschatological crisis, clash, consummation, final war, judgment, etc. And of course, it is here in this apocryphal book, apocalyptic book, I should say, it is here in this apocalyptic book that the protological antichrist meets the eschatological Christ, and the eschatological Christ Christ vanquishes his eschatological antithesis to the lake of fire forever and ever. All right, now this clash. between the two forces, Satan and his opponent, who is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This clash, which is even as old as the rebellion of the fallen angels before the creation of the world, this clash is that which many commentators suggest gives the background to the phrase in this letter to Pergamon, Satan's throne or Satan's seat in verse 13. In other words, does the seat or the throne suggest a position or place of reigning power in a pagan culture of depravity expressed by its shrines, one of which is dedicated to the worship of serpents. Yes, they worshiped the serpents as well. Worshiped of serpents and the mores or the ethics, which is blatantly immoral. That is, Satan's seat or Satan's throne is Pergamon's culture, dominated by Satan's reign from his throne or seat of influence. Satan's seduction And dominant power, is that the symbolism or the suggestion of the meaning of this language, Satan's seat or Satan's throne? It must be noted in a book full of symbolism and imagery that this suggestion is certainly possible. Satan's seat as a comprehensive term of identification with Pergamon's entire pagan society her ethos, her mores, it all belongs to the devil. It all emerges from the pit of hell, so to speak. But there are other scholars who dismiss this, shall we say, symbolic or imaginative description of the meaning of Satan's seat and prefer to identify Satan's throne with a great altar to Zeus or Zeus Soter, Soter means savior in Greek, the altar to Zeus Soter, which was featured on that 1,000-foot plateau where the city of Pergamum sat. And that altar to Zeus was immense. It was 300 by 225 feet in, in perimeter. That's larger than a football field. The altar itself was elevated above the foundation. Foundation is still there, incidentally. It was elevated by the, it's ruined, it's in ruins, but it's still, it, the fragments of it are still there. <clears throat> the altar itself was elevated above that foundation 40 feet into the air. 40 feet is approximately four stories high. You can imagine how far away you could see that thing, from what distance you could see it, sitting up the, upon that thousand foot high cliff. There is Satan's seat. It dominates the horizon, or it dominates that image and position with respect to Pergamon's uh, uh, geographical situation. Here is an altar and shrine which, like the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, is an emblem of the kingdom of darkness either way, either as an image or as the reality of the altar of Zeus on top of that mountain on, on that slope on the on, because there are lots of other buildings on that plateau besides just the altar to zeus, but it it dominated the the, the layout, therefore, in Pergamon, as a result of these three instances of pagan shrines that we've examined, the kingdom of darkness has its seat of power. In Pergamon, the kingdom of darkness has its seat or throne of influence, whether symbolized by the pagan shrines or embodied in the pagan ethos or the environment of the city and its mores. And yet the gospel of the kingdom of light had reached Pergamon. There was a church there. We're reading about it here perhaps a result of the spread of Paul's gospel, through his is three years of laboring in Ephesus, as he indicates in Acts 19, verse 10. It's important to notice what Paul says there, that the gospel went forth into all of Asia as a result of his time spent in Ephesus. That doesn't mean that he went forth in all of Asia. We know that he did not reach Colossae, He did not reach Colossae because he had never visited, and his epistle to the Colossians is written in hopes that he might come to that church someday in person. So how did the Gospel of Paul get to Colossae? Well, as we pointed out in our series on Colossians, it probably came from Epaphras, who carried that message that he had heard in Ephesus down to Colossae and started a church in the home of (coughs) Philemon. All right, but... This point, namely that Pergamon is not on the list of Paul's epistles, not even mentioned by the Apostle Paul, Pergamon is obviously evangelized by somebody who had been previously evangelized, perhaps even by Paul or others in Ephesus and had taken the message to Pergamon and established a community of believing Christians in that pagan city. A community of Christians at Pergamon had already endured persecution. One noted member had been martyred. His name is given in verse 13. His name is Antipas. And we know no more than his name and that he is a faithful witness. All right, now keep your eyes on that phrase in verse 13, a faithful witness, and turn back... To chapter 1, verse 5. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. What do you see there in that verse? The words faithful witness. Antipas is given the same label that Jesus is given. For Antipas joined to the one who is eternally faithful and witness to the gospel of salvation by grace and faith in his marvelous name, a name which is above every name. Even as Jesus is faithful unto death, so to Antipas is faithful unto death for Jesus' sake. Here is a rich and poignant mirror image relationship. That Antipas, out of his union with Christ, by grace through faith, reflects and mirrors the character of Christ as described in verse 5 of chapter 1. The eschatological faithful witness draws Antipas into union with his faithful witness mirror. And so Antipas, Antipas has the privilege of having that title given to his testimony that he as his savior is a faithful witness unto death alright now uh, we'll reach the time which we, we should take a break, break. I think Yoriba uh, you were ready with a question uh, I just made an observation that here, Christ is the faithful witness and the ruler of all he was saying Antipas was my faithful witness, who was killed among where Satan dwells. Sort of a same sort of omen. Um, you're, yeah. you're thinking of the influence of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. Yes, you, you, you could <coughs> Christ, and where he dwells, or where, that he rules over the kings. And Antipas in the place of where Satan rules. Okay. Like Antipas, some in this church at Pergamum hold fast to the faith of the gospel, as verse 13 indicates. They too mirror their union with Christ against Satan's kingdom, refusing to deny their Savior, their Lord, and their God. But in verse 14, some in his church do not hold fast the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. They are, in fact, counterfeits, pretending to be Christians, but practicing the lifestyle of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. Though bearing different names, these two groups are likely variations on a theme. There have been immense books and papers written on the identity of the Nicolaitans, whose name is known to us only from this second chapter of the book of Revelation, and nothing more is said in detail about what they believe or where they came from. And that remains scholarly <coughs> an academic, a technical mystery even today. But I want to point out something about the way Jesus rephr- <coughs> phrases his address to these two groups. Notice in verse 14, he says, some hold to the teaching of Balaam. I'm calling them the Balaamites. Then in verse 15, he says, you have also some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Whatever it is that the Nicolaitans hold, they hold it in the same way that the Balaamites hold it. There is the light on what the Nicolaitans are advancing. That's the reason I say that these two groups, the followers of Balaam and the followers of the Nicolaitans, these two groups inside the church at Pergamon are variations on a theme. They're both committed to basically the same theme. They're antinomians. That is, they're against the law of God and his Christ. What are they for? Therefore, liberty, libertinism. Therefore, freedom to do what they wish and still claim the name of Christ. The specifics of that are given in the Balaam list, they eat meat, eat food sacrificed to idols and they commit immorality or fornication. So there is a reflection upon what the Nicolaitans stood for, just a group with a distinctive name which was holding to the very same errors that the Balaamites were holding to and we have specifics about what they were advocating. All right, the moral character, then, of these two groups inside the church is a reflection of the moral character of Balaam himself, which more, which also mirrors that of the Nicolaitans. They are practicing the same ways, the same moral or immoral activities, even as they claim membership in the Church of Christ at Pergamum. Now, let's be clear. The description of Old Testament reprobate Balaam and his character in encouraging the seduction of the children of Israel at Baal Peor prior to the crossing over the Jordan River is summarized by Christ here as, first of all, indulging carnal fornication. The Old Testament says Israel played the harlot at Baal Peor, Numbers 25.1. Second, Christ indicates here that they are encouraging the eating of food or meat sacrificed to idols. The Old Testament text in Numbers 25 indicates that in addition to their fornication in the matter of Baal Peor, they also ate and drank before Baal. So it is idolatry and it is immorality. Right Now, there are any number of choices with respect to the Pergamon Church as the, as the uh, uh, competition for this kind of behavior. One inspiration is the cult, is the cult of Zeus, Zeus himself. The other is the cult of Asclepius. The other is the Emperor cult. We are a hold of plethora of pagan gods and goddesses whose shrines encouraged, this kind of sacrifice and this kind of sacri- sexual immorality. In fact, Pergamon was reported to bleed the city of a thousand temples, a thousand pagan temples. Very same sword of divine judgment which destroyed Balaam in numbers 31, 8 and 16 is threatened against the Balaamites at Pergamum in Revelation 2:16. The sword of this warfare is the truth which flows from the mouth of the risen and glorified Lord Jesus. These idolaters and fornicators will have no place in my kingdom, says Jesus, unless they repent. Worship me alone, says the Lord Jesus, not these Pergamene idols. Practice moral and chaste, chaste sexuality as I did, not the immoral and unchaste, even unnatural sexuality rampant, in your pagan culture. Worship in this community, worship in this ecclesiastical body is about and around and and directed to me, says the Lord Jesus, not to these gods and goddesses, which are no gods or goddesses at all. Now that brings us to the eschatological verse in this third letter noting at the end of each of the three letters there is an eschatological verse to him who overcomes the promise to the overcomers promise to those who are faithful faithful even unto death in verse 17 there are three eschatological gifts or three eschatological benefits which are listed hidden manna Whitestone, and a new name. First of all, we understand that these are all ultimately eschatological or heavenly realities. There is a mysterious quality about these three elements. Most commentators and scholars don't really know what most of them are about. Some of them are about. They're puzzled by them. I'm not going to solve the puzzle, but I'm going to advance my own suggestion as to what's going on here. First of all, our perspective is not particularly to the earthly arena. We're not particularly looking at the temporal uh, circumstances. My perspective is that these are all gifts of the heavenly and eternally eschatological arena. So that means that these three elements interface or have a relationship to the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. If these are mysteries, then they are related to the mystery, namely the mystery of the kingdom of heaven or the mystery of the kingdom of God, which is precisely what Jesus was demonstrating in his earthly ministry. He was showing you what the kingdom of heaven is like, making it less mysterious. The kingdom of heaven, a mystery of an invisible dimension. You cannot see heaven, not this dimension. It is invisible. It is known only to those who have true faith, and it is unknown to those who are heirs to the kingdom of darkness, those who bear the mark in the name of the beast. This is antithetical imagery as well as eschatological positive imagery. These heirs of the mystery are fed. They are fed a hidden bread, invisible to all, save to those privileged to feed upon it. It is manna in heaven, which is one of the feast elements of the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the presence of the one who is the bread of life, This manna nourishes the life of those who hunger for the glorified Christ to all eternity. And they shall feed for eternity upon that wondrous hidden manna. This is the food of eternal life. Manna hidden in the eschatological arena but revealed as a gift to those who long to feed upon the bread of heaven. They hunger for it. They long to be filled with it. Because they long to be fed with him who is the eschatological bread of heaven. That's why it's hidden. It will be revealed in its fullness and its satisfying quality in the dimension where it exists, in that kingdom of heaven where the bread of life dwells forever and ever. Now, the white stone is even more mysterious than the bread. There are all kinds of suggestions as to what it means. Amy was kind of like an admission, an admission ticket to an initiation ceremony, etc. <clears throat> I'm not going to go over all of those suggestions. It remains mysterious because it's part of the realm of mystery, the mystery of heaven itself. The significance of the white, to- white stone appears to be hidden until we realize it is not so much the stone that is important, but what is written on it. The name written on the stone. Notice that this is called by Jesus in verse 17, a new name. A new name. It's what's written on the stone that's important, not the stone itself. The new name that is there. Now this new name, which is given to the believing recipient, is a mirror image of the new name which Christ Jesus even now possesses. Christ Jesus possesses a new name? Yes, he does. And he says so. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 12. Look what Jesus says. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Jesus has a new name. What are you talking about, Jennifer? Jesus has. Jesus has a new name consistent with the new age which he brings. A new name for the Christ consistent with the messianic kingdom over which he rules. A new name for Christ consistent with the new arena that he occupies and the new dimension that he inhabits. He inhabits heaven anew in every way. For heaven has been made new in every way since Jesus came down from it and returned back to it. Here is a gracious and precious union with a name above every name, even the name Christian, which defines every true believer in relation with the Christ, whose name echoes and re-echoes through heaven And earth even now. His name is the name of the one crucified. That's a new name for him. The one crucified. Condemned with guilt and shame. That's a new name for him. Condemned, guilty, and shameful. Your new name is. I have been crucified together with my Christ. My guilt and shame have been wrapped up in him and his cross. My new name is the name that I've been crucified together with Christ Jesus. That's my name. His new name is the name of the one justified. His name is the one declared not guilty of sin and unrighteousness. Your new name is I have been justified in his righteous justification. I am declared not guilty by being wrapped up in his righteousness robe, draped over me in imputation of the pristine righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is of the righteousness of God itself. My new name is justified, even as my new name is crucified, even as his new name is crucified and his new name is justified. And his is the name of the one vivified, raised from the tomb, alive from the dead. Your new name is, I have been vivified. I have been raised from the dead in his resurrection. His life from the grave is the life of the age to come, the eternal life of that eternal kingdom of God, where all enjoy the privileges of vivid resurrection life in union with their Lord whose new name is, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus has a new name, and he lets you borrow it. Jesus has a new name, and he lets you possess it. Jesus has a new name, and that precious name is above every name and our love and delight, who love him in sincerity. Shall we pray? How we rejoice in the work of your Son, O Lord, this precious Savior who sits at your right hand, and by your Spirit works in us even more understanding and amazement At what he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. His crucifixion, justification, and being made alive again. All of these precious benefits and gifts are ours through him, not through any Roman emperor, not through any Greek god or Roman goddess, not through any pagan temple or series of seductive motions and mores present through him and him alone, in union with his holiness and righteousness and truth. O Lord, bless us as we penetrate more deeply into those wonderful gifts, this treasure that we have from him who is the name above all others. Blessing and honor and glory be unto that name, now and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Yes, Randy. am not right in assuming that no one knows the name except one who sees it, that even in heaven we're not going to share that faith. No, I think, I think he's referring to the fact that the believer of the faithful do know it. And So I'm trying to fill out what they know. And you will know that you are justified, crucified, and vivified. In glory, and you will share that knowledge with others who have had the same experience. So it's not an individual name for each person. I don't. I don't think so. It, it's entering into the fullness of the name of Christ Himself. That's my peculiar interpretation. Now I'm not going to object if someone's going to say it's a name of an. It's an elect name, a peculiar name to an elect person. I'm not denying the uniqueness of every individual person's salvation, but here he's referring to an, an arena, a dimension, and referring to him, and, and the fact that he receives a new name is simply indicating the plethora of all of his titles, and all of, everything is describing his activity of redeeming us, saving us, even sanctifying us by his Holy Spirit. No, no, I don't think there'll be any secrets. There'll be mysteries in heaven, but there won't be any secrets in heaven. There'll be things you won't be able to understand. Those aren't secrets, they'll be mysteries. They'll be beyond your ability to comprehend even as a creature, even as a glorified creature. There'll always be a creator creature distinction even in glory. He will he God, the triune God will know more than you do. You will never be omniscient. That would mean that you are God.